Okay, chapter 7 of The Courts of Chaos opens, quote, a bowl of cotton candy, end quote. And that's how he's describing this valley that lies below him. He's gotten through the pass of all the red rocks and everything with the showdown with Brand, and now he thinks he's in some kind of valley, but it's covered in this mist, this fog. And the sky is now sort of getting multicolored, Instead of just a red streaking, he's got a yellow streak, a green streak. And it's starting to remind us of that rainbow-colored sky from the Courts of Chaos. And this is giving Corwin a little bit of like a lift, a little bit of optimism that he's getting close. He's walking down into this valley. He comes across an old tree, and he cuts off a branch to make a staff. And he doesn't have his horse anymore. Now we've got this image of Corwin walking with a staff which is a little concerning. But what's interesting here is the tree kind of yells when Corwin cuts a branch off. And Corwin says, quote, you're sentient? I'm sorry, end quote. And yeah, the tree's talking to him. And I won't go through all of this, but this is kind of a fun scene, a back and forth between Corwin and the tree. And the tree we're going to find out is called Yig, Y-G-G, or Yig, And this meeting with the talking tree, who, by the way, represents the boundary between chaos and order. So he's come to the end. He's come to, like, this literal territorial border between order and chaos. The tree says, quote, My staff may comfort you, however. Planted, it may blossom in strange climes. Then again, it may not, who can say. Bear it with you, however, son of Oberon, into the place where you journey now. I feel a storm approaching. Goodbye, end quote. And so that's kind of the end of the dialogue between Corwin and Ig, the tree. And there's a bit of foreshadowing in there, like plant the staff and something may blossom, right? We're going to hear about the cherry blossom soon enough when Corwin gives up and plants the staff and then draws his own pattern, right? And then, you know, the tree will, will blossom after that. All the while, Corwin's thinking about the cherry blossoms in Paris in 1905. So this is a little foreshadowing there. But there are two other things to call out about this interchange between Corwin and Yig. And I don't know if I should say Yig or Ig, because this is an allusion to Yggdrasil, which is the mythological tree from Norse mythology. Y-G-G-D-R-A-S-I-L. And Zelazny is just shortening that to Y-G-G here. So that's the allusion. But the other thing is that this meeting between Corwin and the talking tree It parallels Dante's meeting in Dante's Inferno, where he comes across a talking tree in the middle ring of the seventh circle of hell. And that's obviously from Inferno, book one of the Divine Comedy. It's in Canto 13, and this is when Dante and Virgil enter the wood of the suicides. And, you know, this is super detailed and kind of interesting, only because we know that Zelazny was very much inspired by Dante's Inferno. Dante Alighieri, the 13th century poet, along with Shakespeare and other classics. And so this is a pretty specific reference in the Wood of the Suicides. Basically, as the mythology goes, people who kill themselves spend eternity in hell, and they spend it sort of transformed into these trees. And Dante comes along, and he actually breaks a branch off of one of the trees, and it yells, Why do you break me? And there's blood coming out of it, and Dante is kind of horrified by this, and Virgil's there. And they get the guy, the tree, 
to tell his story of like what happened to him in the real life, why he killed himself. And that's sort of like how Dante's Inferno goes. They're always coming across these damned souls and getting them to tell their story. And in this case, it's actually the story of Pierre Delvigne, who was a real person, like a minister to Frederick II. Anyway, he tells his story and they're all like stuck in this forest, this wood of, of the suicides. So that's pretty fascinating and kind of multi-layered. You have the parallel to the moment in the Wood of the Suicides and Dante's Inferno, but you also, you know, and we'll find out here just in a minute, Corbin comes across Hughie, the Black Raven, and the first thing that Hughie says to him is, quote, you're carrying a piece of old Ig, I see. And Corbin says, Ig? And Hughie says, the stuffy old tree who waits at the entrance to this place and won't let anyone rest on his branches. I bet he yelled at you when you whacked it off, end quote. So that's where we learn the name of this tree, and it's clearly an allusion to Yggdrasil, as I said. So he's playing with both Norse mythology here, and also Hugi is probably an allusion to Hugin, who's one of the two mythical ravens of Odin, and that's also out of Norse mythology. So Yg and Hugi, that's you know, that's Norse, but also there's this, you know, medieval Christian mythology coming out of Dante. Hughie becomes kind of a companion now to Corwin, and he's this obnoxious bird, and they're having these philosophical debates back and forth, and that kind of like covers the next chapter of the book, basically. And they come across this huge buried head. Corwin says, quote, the fogs broke for a moment, and I beheld a huge head, eyes on level with my own. They belonged to what seemed a giant body sunk up to the shoulders in a quag. The head was bald, the skin was pale as milk with a stony texture to it, end quote. And that also conjures up Dante's Inferno, the ninth circle of hell, the worst of the worst of the sinners. The damned souls reside there in the ninth circle alongside Satan, the fallen angel. The ninth circle, by the way, is treachery. And as a quick side note, this is where traitors go to spend eternity. And it's a really interesting insight into Dante's view of, of morality and kind of like really what he's trying to say with the whole thing is like even worse than lust, gluttony, greed, avarice, all these things. You know, those are actually kind of sins of the flesh, but it's really the, these kinds of sins, betrayal, treachery, the traitors, they're actually the worst of the worst because they're sinning really hurts other people. And so he puts them actually in the lowest circle of hell. And the ninth circle is basically this frozen lake of ice, Lake Cocytus. And all the sinners there are basically buried up to their necks for the most part. And it's horrible and grim. And that's how they have to spend eternity. And there's a couple of them that are like chewing on each other. And it's like, you know, pretty crazy. But I kind of think this scene with Corwin and Hughie on his shoulder or whatever, and they come across the head who's buried up to his shoulders. Like, it, it reminds me of the ninth circle of hell in Dante. Corwin goes back and forth a bit with the head, and it's, again, this kind of nihilism where Corwin's like, I can free you, and the head is like, no, that's fine. What's the point? We're all going to be dead soon anyway, sort of thing. And so Corwin's like, fine. The head says, quote, wait, where do you travel and Corwin says, South to appear in a morality play, end quote. And that's an interesting line. And I'm not quite sure what Corwin's getting at, but he's clearly starting to see this whole thing as a, as a weird kind of movie in which he's a crazy character. There's more philosophical back and forth. 
some kind of sophistry between Corwin and Hughie. They're talking about the absolute. And eventually they get to this plane. And Corwin calls it a smooth, level place, almost paved-seeming, though strewn lightly with sand. And there's some dancers here, and that's kind of creepy. And again, I'd love to just see all of this brought to life with concept art and production design. It's just a super trippy final lap of Corwin's journey to chaos. These weird human figures sort of garbed in, quote, courtly attire treading to the slow measures of invisible musicians and intricate and lovely dance they executed. I halted to watch some of it, end quote. And Hughie the bird says they're dancing to celebrate Corwin's passage. So again, it's sort of the prophecy and, and everything that is happening to Corwin now is, is part of his own subconsciousness sort of brought to life. He stops at one point to watch a woman. He describes her as, quote, an auburn-haired beauty, end quote. She reminds us a little bit of Lorraine, maybe. And there's more back and forth with the bird about the futility of desire and striving. And, you know, at some point, Corwin says, quote, I've had a long life, Hughie. You insult me by assuming I've never considered these footnotes to sophomore philosophy, end quote. So Corwin's getting kind of fed up with all of this talk about the absolute and desire and, and sort of the human nature. You know, there's more plain. It's like a gravelly plain now. There's no horse. Corbin's just like walking across it. This bird's pissing him off. He's reaching into the jewel. The jewel, by the way, is having its slowdown effect. So everything is slowing down around Corbin, and that's at least good. He's not losing time. And then Hughie kind of flies off, and Corbin comes across the jackal, and it's like this animal. And that's how he ends chapter seven, and he goes right into chapter eight with this back and forth with the talking jackal. And the jackal says, quote, I have come merely to regard a prince of amber. Anything else would be a bonus, end quote. And Corwin says, then feast your eyes, anything else, and you'll find that I have rested sufficiently. And there's something back and forth here. You know, the jackal's like, no, 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 you got me wrong. I love amber. I love chaos, too. It's royal blood that appeals to me and conflict. And the jackal calls Corwin a prince of chaos, which is interesting. And Corwin is like, hmm, that's not quite right. My connection with the courts is, quote, mainly a matter of genealogy, end quote. And the jackal makes a point here. He says, quote, at the heart of the order Amber represents moves a family most chaotic, just as the house of chaos is serene and placid. Yet you have your ties as well as your conflicts, end quote. And I think that's kind of an, an interesting jumping off point as well for the Merlin Chronicles. And, and that'll get pointed out in those books as well, that in some ways, Amber seems more chaotic than chaos, and in some ways, chaos seems more serene and ordered than Amber. Anyway, there's an interesting bit of dialogue back and forth between Corwin and the Jackal. They fight. Ultimately, Corwin has to kill the Jackal in this kind of disgusting scene, and the Jackal's thrashing and vomiting, and he says the smell is overpowering, and it's all kind of gross and disgusting. And the last line from the Jackal is, quote, It would have been so fine to eat a Prince of Amber. I always wondered about royal blood, end quote. And then the thing dies. And what is it about the Jackal, by the way? At this point, Selazny's being so clever and sophisticated with mythology with poetry with his literary references and allusions that he's got to be choosing the jackal for a reason and you know the jackal 
turns up in all kinds of cultures, so it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what he might mean here, but there are a couple of things we can look at. One is a biblical reference from Psalm 63.10, quote, they will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals, end quote. And in this kind of spiritual sense, the jackal represents one whose worldly cunning and indifference to the plight of others, you know, a trickster of sorts. The Dominican Friars website talks about the jackal as a biblical reference. They say, quote, the jackal waits and watches, and when the time is opportune and the risk slight, he pounces. His aim is survival at any cost, end quote. But there's also jackals in Egyptian mythology. Hinduism as well associates the jackal with Kali, the goddess of death and destruction. So, you know, it shows up in different places, but obviously there's an association with death. There's an association with trickery. They're obviously scavengers, and Zelazny's drawing upon that quality of the jackal here. And it's just yet another cool, crazy character. Obviously, at this point in Corwin's journey, animals are sentient, trees are sentient. You know, he's having conversations with birds, with jackals. Like, we're just in a totally different kind of world now. Anyway, Corwin presses on. He's getting a little bit despondent. The bird comes back. He's walking, he's walking, and he comes across this wasteland. And, you know, he thought that he was going to climb over this sort of ridge and look out and see that he'd arrived at the Courts of Chaos. But in fact, when he gets over, he sees, quote, a great wasteland which commenced somewhere below the farther lip of the plateau to sweep on for at least 40 miles before butting up against another range of mountains. And far off to the left and still running strong went the black road, end quote. And this is sort of Corman at his most despondent moment. He thought he was close, but in fact, there's just like an endless amount of wasteland and more mountains and he's never going to get there. And Hughie's being kind of a jerk. Oh, I could have told you that was there. Why didn't you just ask me? And Corwin is like, I can't do it. I can't beat this thing. I failed. And he's, he's ready to give up. But he finally comes up with this new plan. And he says, quote, If dad failed, I've got to attempt something that Bran tried to convince me only he could do. I have to create a new pattern, and I have to do it right here, end quote. And Hughie the bird is like, are you kidding me? You can't do that. If Oberon couldn't do it, you couldn't do it. You know, The best thing you can do is just give up and give yourself over to the absolute and Corwin says, quote, As for me, I must try, for so long as there is breath within me to raise up a pattern against it, I do this because I am what I am, and I am the man who could have been king in amber, end quote. And Hughie says, quote, I'll see you eat crow first, end quote, and that's kind of fun. He bows his head. Corwin reaches out and twists off the head of the bird, saying that he wishes he had time to build a fire, and he's basically going to eat Hughie to give himself a little bit of strength before he sets about inscribing his own pattern. And it's just kind of awesome and unexpected, but in some ways it makes sense, and we've all been sort of like waiting for this moment for Corwin to rise up and do something awesome, and he does. And that's the end of chapter 8, and chapter 9 starts, quote, Cassis and the smell of the chestnut blossoms. All along the Champs-Élysées, the chestnuts were foaming white. 
I remembered the play of the fountains at the Place de Concorde and down the Rue de la Seine and along the quays, the smell of the old books, the smell of the river, the smell of the chestnut blossoms, end quote. And he's remembering 1905 in Paris on his shadow earth. And he doesn't know why. He doesn't know why he's suddenly remembering this time. But we just get a lot of references. The Comédie Française, he's talking about the different cafes he used to go to. And it was just a time when he was super happy. And for some reason, that's coming up. And that's his mindset as he goes to inscribe the new pattern. He sticks the branch from the tree into the ground and he leaves it there as he starts to inscribe the pattern and he starts with a big perimeter right and then he's going to be circling in through the center and you know I won't go through all of this again great writing from Zelazny a lot of just visual narrative poetic stuff he's turning left right left right he's remembering all these times he's remembering people And eventually the storm comes up to the edge of the pattern that he's drawing and it starts kind of parting and wrapping around it. So the pattern's going to hold. He goes back to his kind of like flashbacks. The Tuileries Gardens, that's a specific reference to a place that sits between the Louvre and the Place de Concorde. So like he's got his map of, you know, that part of Paris all worked out. He then talks about Berlin in the 20s and the Pacific in the 30s. So there's a couple more references now that help us put together the Corwin timeline. The Pacific in the 30s, by the way, stood out to me. That one's just a bit of a weird break in Corwin's timeline because we know, you know, Paris 1905, then he goes to Berlin in the 20s. We know he's in Vienna. There's references to Zurich and eventually Poland. He's kind of like throughout, you know, the build up to World War II, you know, there in those countries. And so when he says Pacific in the 30s, it's a bit weird because he's just going to go there and come back to Europe. But, you know, it's fine. It makes sense. Corwin's a world traveler. We'll have to go along with it. But I do think it kind of breaks the narrative of Corwin in Europe, his discussions with Freud and, you know, all of that stuff and the Bertolt Brecht play. And, you know, you just kind of pictured him there pretty much throughout the 30s and 40s. But no, he takes this side trip to the Pacific. We don't get any more details about it. He's back to Paris, the Pont Neuf, the Rue Rivoli. Uh, He talks about the Luxembourg Gardens. He's very, like, nostalgic about Shadow Earth in this section and even says that it ranks with his Avalon and that he'd kind of almost forgotten how much he loved it. And then there's a little bit more of this life flashing in front of him kind of stuff. He's making references to the head and, you know, all the other people he's been talking to. You know, all these faces and voices, by the way, they're sort of like mocking Corwin. They're rising up around the perimeter. They're shouting at him. They're, they're trying to distract him to get him to stop. You can't do it. They shout, mad, mad, mad. And there's these voices. And you can just totally imagine the audio of all of this as well as like what a cool scene it would be. You know, Corwin's essentially doing something that nobody thinks he can do. He's standing up against, you know, everything, both Amber, the pattern, chaos, his own subconscious, his own self-doubt, and he's fighting against all of it to create this safe harbor of order, survive the storm, to have something of order left in case Oberon failed and there's nothing else out there, then he'll start a whole new universe right here. And it's pretty crazy. 
there's a section that's a kind of gratuitous recapping of everything. You know, he goes back to his escape from Greenwood and tricking Flora and then Random and, you know, journeying back to Amber and the flight to Rebma. And he just kind of goes over all that again with Eric, the Black Circle, eventually Benedict, Dara, Brand, and so forth. So that's kind of gratuitous, but it's a good little recap. He reminds us at one point, quote, I knew somehow that if anyone else were doing it, it would be a different pattern emerging, end quote. And that makes us think about Dworkin and how the universe we all live in is the way it is because of Dworkin. And now this new universe is going to be from the personality of Corwin, whatever that means. Anyway, he pushes through. There's more. There's more. He talks about the jewel. Like, it's just the whole description of inscribing this new pattern. And in the end, he's done it. He's standing in the middle of his new pattern. Quote, come whatever may, there was a pattern, and it would endure, end quote. And then, all of a sudden, Bran shows up. And it's super depressing. He punches Corwin, who falls over, and then he kicks Corwin in the stomach, right? And it is a gut punch after all of that. Oh, shit, here's Brand, right? And he's got a black eye patch now, so he couldn't be more of a bad guy. And Brand says, quote, Well, you've done it. I did not think you could. Now I have another pattern to destroy before I set things right. I need this to turn the battle at the courts first, though. He waved the jewel. Goodbye for now. And he vanished, end quote. And poor Corwin, he's just there. He's like lying on his stomach. like, And he says, quote, Waves of blackness rose and fell like a surf within me, though I did not completely succumb to unconsciousness. A feeling of enormous despair washed over me as I closed my eyes and moaned. There was no jewel for me to draw upon either the chestnut trees, end quote. And if we're keeping score, it's Corwin 4, now Brand 3, A big round goes in Brand's favor. And by the way, he's admitting, Brand, that Oberon did succeed. So there's a little bit of a bright spot in here in terms of like Brand was lying when he said that Oberon failed and the pattern was destroyed. He says here, now I have another pattern to destroy before I set things right. So he's telling us in that moment that Oberon didn't fail, but it's also kind of like, okay, so Corwin... You create a new pattern, but the old one wasn't destroyed. So now we got two patterns. What does that mean? And we'll talk more about that. But we can't get over the fact that Corwin has just done this incredible act of creation. And now it may all be for naught because Brand's got the jewel. And that act of creation is, for Zelazny, I think, a little bit of an analogy to the act of writing. And if we go to the F. Brett Cox's book, the biographer, he says, quote, And when Corwin gains access to the courts of chaos, enabling his ultimate victory, he does so not through the old broken pattern, but by making a new one, a process that calls forth memories of a happy interlude in his past on Earth, 1905 Paris, even as it demands an excruciating precision. And then Cox goes on to quote Corwin, I did not meet with the physical resistance that I did on the old pattern. A peculiar deliberation had come over all my movements, slowing them, ritualizing them. I seemed to expend more energy in preparing for each step than I did in the physical performance of the act. Yet the slowness seemed to require itself, was exacted of me by some known agency which determined precision, 
and an adagio tempo for all my movements. And then Cox goes on to say, could there be a better description of the act of writing? If Zelazny began the Chronicles of Amber struggling to find his preferred artistic path, he ended the series' first half with a reminder of the difficult requirements of both creative process and practical accommodation, and, arguably, a more mature vision of both. For Corwin, if Amber is not what you thought it was, it is still worth preserving. If the pattern you thought was your legacy no longer works, the only thing to do, the only way to defeat the forces of chaos, is to draw a new pattern of your own. End quote. And so that's it. That's the end of chapter nine. Corwin's lying there, doesn't have the jewel anymore to draw upon for strength. He's gasping, says he's clutching at his stomach. Quote, waves of blackness rose and fell like a surf within me, though I did not completely succumb to unconsciousness. A feeling of enormous despair washed over me, and I closed my eyes and moaned. End quote. And so what's he going to do now? 